Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens and I'm glad that you've taken time out of your Tuesday evening to join us here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'll tell you more information in just a minute of how you can join us. But sitting across the desk from me as usual is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and it's good to be back. I hope the folks who are listening enjoyed the program. Thank you so much for allowing us to come into your home this evening. There are a number of ways that you can interact with us. Again, I'm emphasizing the interacting because this program is not just about you sitting there and listening. It's about you asking the questions that you have been asked that you don't know for sure if you have a complete answer. Maybe it's a question that you have about the Bible or about what the Bible says, or maybe why the Bible doesn't say something, we would love to hear your question and answer it from a biblical worldview. Now, before we jump back into our material on the topic of biblical separation, Pastor, we have a couple of questions, a few questions that have just popped up. Some came in over the last two weeks since we had a live episode, and a couple have just popped up even as I've been introducing this episode. The first one is in relation to two verses in the Old Testament. Pastor Murphy, can you please help me reconcile these verses? 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 26 says, Two and twenty years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Athaliah, the daughter of Omri, king of Israel. And then if you look at Second Chronicles chapter 22 and verse number 2, it says, 42 years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign. Pastor, if this is the same person, how is it two different ages? Well, this is one of the reasons sometimes you need to understand that every translation is not inspired. And there are times when you need to make certain corrections in a translation. And in this case, um, clearly he could not have been 22 when he began to reign and 42 at the same time. It's the same person you're talking about, basically, in the passage. If you do the parallel between Kings and Chronicles, remember that Chronicles is a repetition of what is in Kings. Okay. Kings is from the prophetic angle of the prophet. Uh, Chronicles is from the priestly angle of the prophet. And you'll see there's a distinction between the two, but it records substantially the same type of history. What you will discover, you look at 2 Kings 8.17. Kings 8.17 says, 32 years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. 
Right. If you check that uh, before, you see that the, the person who reigned uh, 32 years was Joram, which was the father of Ahaziah. Okay. So it's impossible. And by the way, he, he reigned for how many years? Eight years. Right. So he, if he reigned at 32 and, and reigned to eight, he died at 40. Now, if he's at 40 years and he died, his son can't be 42 when he began to reign. He's found to be older than the father. So this is one of the ways where you realize that this is a copious error, a mistake that was in, in copying. And remember that we didn't have, um, when these documents were written, it was handwritten. The entire scriptures were handwritten. And uh, even though you take all kinds of measures to ensure there was no error, you always, because you're dealing with a human, uh, you could make, sometimes they don't forget to leave a, a letter, cross it, etc., etc. Just that we make mistakes. No matter how I write a letter three or four times, if I go back over, there's always a comma, a, a missed something that's made. That's the human error. But this is a copious mistake, and quite frankly, the correct answer would be that he was 42, uh, 22 when he began to reign. Because if that were not so, he would have been older than his father, and that doesn't make any sense. So the logic will tell you that this is a copious error that could have been correct. And mind you, that's why, Nathan, sometimes when people uh, say the King James Version is inspired and that you must leave it as it is, a person who is an unsafe person picking up the King James, for example, and seeing this in it, wouldn't wonder, but wait a minute, there's a clear contradiction. It can be 22 and 42 at the same time. And that's where those things can be, it, it, when you, that's where you need sometimes to revise it and uh, cor correct the way the, er the error was made. Uh, but those who hold staunchly to the 1611 believe that you can't change anything. Well, you leave a lot of things in there that give the enemy ammunition to use against the church, and et cetera, et cetera. Let me just clarify. You believe the Bible is inspired? Of course, definitely. Okay. But again, remember that the, the, um, the we, 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 we only attribute inspiration to the autographs, the originals. So, But the originals, they were copied from the original, copied and copied and copied and copied and copied and copied and copied. And, copied. and the Jews, and, and by the way, you can check any book on um, uh, dealing with the scriptures in terms of the um, translation of it or the copying of it. And even when you found the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, in 1947, I think it was, those documents were a thousand years old than the documents we had before that, that the, the King James was translated from. But yet when they compared the documents that the King James was translated from with the documents they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were almost to T. Uh, so the accuracy is, is not to be doubted. Anyone that doubts the Bible cannot believe in history. There's no other ancient historical book that has more documentation and more. It has over 5,000 copies uh, of the, um, with the New Testament documents to support that. There's no other historical document in ancient history that even comes close to it. And the precise accuracy is so, is so amazing that uh, there's nothing to compare with it in the ancient world. So if a person can believe in Caesar and can believe in uh, Thucydides and believe in all of these other um, uh, Greek philosophers and what they wrote, you can't believe in that and doubt the Bible. The evidence is far more for the Bible in, the, in terms of documentation accuracy than any other historical book. Thank you very much to the individual who sent in that question. Another question, does God still use dreams to speak to people today? Yeah, well, well let's, let's, let's confess that um, when you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, it is very, very clear that God used dreams as a medium of communicating with people. He did that with Jacob. He did that with Joseph in the Old Testament. And he also did that with Pharaoh. 
when you come to the New Testament, you find that he also used dreams to speak to people. He spoke to Joseph and tell him go down into Egypt to avoid the um, death threat of, of Herod. Also, he spoke to Cornelius about sending for Peter in a dream. So we can't discount the fact that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, God did speak to people to dreams. Uh, the Bible is complete. And generally speaking, I would say to people who uh, are relying upon dreams, you need to rely upon the Bible because God's Word is now totally complete. In both cases, whether in the Old Testament and the New Testament, no Old Testament writer had the Bible complete. No New Testament a person that we read in had the, a complete New Testament. Uh, the last New Testament book was written over uh, 95 A.D., which is John's um, revelation. But now that the, the Bible is complete, we should really look to the Bible more for guidance. Um, there are several things in uh, in the Scripture that um, tells us that the, the Word of God is really to be the guide. Um, David said, thy, um, thy Word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto, a light unto my path. Uh, he also said, The entrance of thy Word gave of light. Uh, our Lord said that man should not live by bread alone, but by the Word of God. So clearly, the Word of God is to be the main avenue whereby we get counsel from Scripture. However, I would not discount the possibility of God intervening, especially in the non-Christian world where they have not been exposed to the Scriptures. For example, I think we've said this on another program, there are hundreds of Muslims coming to faith today, not because they've got a direct, nobody could have access to them because of the restriction that those um, Muslim countries put on Christians. But the Lord is appearing, and these people are seeing dreams which are leading them to seek the truth and coming to the Lord. Now, this is an extraordinary way in which God is working. But again, you can see why that would be required in that type, that type of a situation. It's not like in the West where you have free access to, to the Bible. You have a situation where the government, uh, on the pain of death and sometimes imprisonment and confiscation of your property and losing all that you own, uh, and these people are seeking truth. And the Lord has appeared to many of these people. And this is not just a bogus uh, claim. They're very solid men uh, today who can, who are very credible men of integrity, who have repeatedly mentioned the fact of the coming of many Muslims, and it's not a lot to do with dreams and visions that they're having of the Lord appearing. I would not discount that. I believe that that is possible, and I can see why it would be happening within that part of the world, vis-a-vis -vis in the Western world where we have free access to Scripture. Here's a listener question that has come in. Thank you to each individual who has sent in your questions. If you have a question, go ahead and send it in. You can send it via WhatsApp or text message to 268-782-1454. We'll get to it in the order that it came in. Or you can call and ask it live on the air, 268-462-7420. Coming from the Southern Caribbean, Pastor, you know, when I hear about the rapture and the tribulation period in Armageddon, I lose all sense of wanting to live. The desire to have kids get married automatically fades. Why should I want to get married and have kids when these crucial periods are ahead? Although God said to be fruitful and multiply, it makes you think twice about entering marriage. Well, I, I can say to you that you're not the only uh, Christian 
And you're not the only generation that felt that kind of way. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul dealt with a similar situation in First Corinthians chapter seven. And I would ask uh, Brother Nathan to turn there to First Corinthians chapter seven. Which verse? Um, well, there's several verses, but um, one of the things that uh, Paul uh, mentions in that particular passage, um, if you look at verse number, mm, verse number twenty-one and twenty-two. Okay. 1 Corinthians seven twenty one and 22. Art thou called a being called... Well, look, read at verse 17 first. Okay. Verse 17. But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk, and so ordain I in, ordain I in all churches. Continue reading. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become circum- uncircumcised. Is any called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Verse 21 says, Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it, but if thou mayest be made free, Use it rather. For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, also he that is called, being free, is Christ's servant. Continue reading. Ye are bought with... Okay, I want you to come to verse 26. Okay. Verse 23 says, Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Brethren, let every man... Wherein he is called, therein abide with God. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandments of the Lord, yet I give my command, my judgment, as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. Verse 26, I suppose therefore that this is good for the present distress. I say that it is good for a man so to be. Yeah, if you... uh, it would have been good to have read the whole whole section, but basically the Apostle Paul is giving counsel and advice to the the Church of Corinth to write, write, and to ask him certain questions about marriage, etc., etc. And he comes to this section where he's discussing marriage, and now he's going to deal with people who are not married. He dealt in the uh, before verse 17, he dealt with people who are married and find themselves even married to an unsafe person. We dealt with that before. But now he's talking about virgins, and he's talking not just about female virgins, but also male virgins. And the big question is, um, should they get married? If they do get married, is it sin that they get married because of the current circumstances? And Paul's counsel basically is this. He said in the first case, as a general principle, uh, because of the current distress you find in that part of the, at that particular point in time in the, the history, the counsel would be, look, whatever your social status is when you get converted, uh, try to live with that social status. So if you find you later on saying, you know, if you if you're not married, um, it's good if you don't if you're not married, like I am not married. However, if you marry, you then commit sin, basically. So that's your first principle that uh, as a Christian dealing with these distressing circumstances, where uh, they want to know if they should get married or not. Paul is saying, look, my general principle with you because of the difficulties that you face right now in Corinth. The wise thing to be that if your Lord save you and you're not in a marriage situation, uh, don't pursue marriage at this point in time. If you're married, don't try to get out of the marriage, whatever status you find yourself in. The other thing he deals with, by the way, had to do with a person who was a servant. 
And uh, Paul is saying, you know what? If you got saved and you find yourself where you're in servitude, you have a master. He said, you know what? As much as muscles uh, remain, but if you can be free, be free, but do it legitimately. That's, that's his whole point. Because you're not to be a servant of man and you're bought with a price. So he's encouraging those who will find themselves in a kind of a serfdom or, or slavery. Uh, at that particular point in time, to um, if they can be freed legitimately, go ahead and do it, basically. So he ta- talked about the, the whole matter of um, circumcision as well. You know, if you were Christ- you became converted when you were not circumcised, don't feel now you're going to be circumcised after you become a Christian. And if you are already circumcised, don't try to become uncircumcised. In other words, when the Lord has called you, looking at the current cir- circumstances, uh, he, he, He's sovereign. He knows exactly your time of birth. He knew what we faced with. So the, the proper thing at this point in time is whatever your circumstances for, try to live out your Christian life in those circumstances. If you can improve them on the other hand, like the case where if you're a slave, you can become free, go ahead and be, get your freedom. The other thing that uh, Paul points out here uh, is the matter of living under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He said whether you are a servant of a man, uh, you're a free man with Christ. If you're freed, your servant of Jesus. So however you look at it, understand the sovereignty, living under the sovereignty of the Lord. And then uh, in connection with marriage now, he's very concerned that the current circumstances is not conducive to, to marriage at this point in time. And he goes on and explains to them later on in the passage uh, the fact that, uh, look at verse 21 and 22. Verse 21 and 22 says, Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. Verse 22. For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's freeman. Likewise also he that is called, being free, is Christ's servant. Okay. Now, the, the other principle is, uh, look at verse 26. I mentioned the present distress. I suppose, therefore... That this is good for the present distress, I say that it is good for a man so to be. Continue reading. Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. Okay, continue. 27. But, and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh... But I spare you. Yeah. So notice he's told them earlier that the present distress is not conducive to marriage. But then he's careful to let them know that, um, you know, if you go ahead and you get married, you're not sinning. In other words, I'm giving you counsel because I'm looking at the current situation you're in. And my counsel to you as an apostle of Christ at this point in time, don't make marriage a priority. Concentrate on uh, serving the Lord. And then he said, but you know what? If you feel that you're not gifted that way, and uh, you can't contain yourself. Well, go ahead and marry. You're not sinning in the process. But then he says in verse number 28, which is the important one there, um, as you mentioned, could you read that again? But, and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. So he's saying that with all these problems you're having, if you get into a marriage situation, you're going to have trouble in the flesh, but what kind of trouble is he talking about? Look at verse 32 and see what he's saying. But I would have you without carefulness. Right. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belongeth to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. 
that's a reality. Once you go into a marital situation, there are distractions. Mm. And the reason why they're distracted because you have obligations. When you go into marriage, you have obligations to your wife, you have obligations to your children, and you even have obligations to society to bring up your family in such a way that it's, it's conducive to the development and the improvement of society. So those are the time that you would be spending if you were not saved, uh, if you were not married. Uh, in serving the Lord, you don't have these instructions. Your time is your time. You, you know, you don't have to pick up a wife at work. You don't have to all this kind. Of, then children, when children come, I don't have to tell you. It's like you're locked down for a period of time. So you have freedom. And that's what he's saying. When you're going to have trouble in the flesh, it doesn't mean that you're going to, uh, in any way, he's, not, he's talking about the fact that you're going to have all of these cares now that you didn't have before. And uh, so he is he's saying to people, like, and, and like the person who asked the question, he's looking at the world, he's seeing the current situation that seemed to be chaotic, seemed to be getting worse and worse. And he feels, uh, the person feels, I don't know if it's a boy or girl, that, you know, looking at this situation, Pastor, I don't know if I want to get married. Again, that's a personal decision that that individual has to make. But again, the counsel that Paul gives in this passage is very helpful. He he wants you to understand that, listen, if you see the situation in such a way that's not conducive to a happy marriage and bringing up children, well, don't get married. Uh, but remember, once you get married, you have obligations. So you can't, you've got to make a choice either way in, the, in that kind of a situation. And that's the same kind of counsel we give these people. Uh, if you feel that it is such an overwhelming situation, it's it always so dark that you don't want to get married because you don't want to bring up children in this world, well, how has God wired you? Hmm. Has He wired you to be celibate? If the answer is no, and He's wired you to be married, well, I think you're going to put yourself in trouble by trying to um, be, become celibate when in actual fact that's not your gift. And that's why Paul goes on in the beginning and said, as the Lord has called every man, how God has gifted you, live within that, that, that gift. So if you were given the gift of celibacy, well, restrain yourself and be celibate. But if he has not given you that gift, quite frankly, you should get married. And remember what Paul said, it's better to marry than to burn. So if you have a, a desire for sexual intimacy and it's eating up your soul so that you don't get into sin, uh, you don't just get married to get sex, by the way. That's not what he's saying. But if you can't contain yourself and you realize that it's going to cause you uh, to perhaps get involved in, in sexual immorality, the wise thing to do is to find a partner that uh, the Lord is for you and go into a marital situation. I'm just showing there's a parallel between how these people thought and how this person is thinking. I can see, I can see uh, how people today are looking at the confusion, the moral confusion. People mm-hmm. don't know who's male from female. A Supreme Court justice can't even tell you what a woman is and she's a woman herself I mean we're living in times where uh, it's incredible how we I don't know how we got here and it's we've gotten here so fast and it's getting worse now where that you can actually children over five six decide that they're female or male the government in the US is trying to say that they will pay for the uh, to be transitioned and the parents don't even have to know what the child is going through. I mean, I've never heard of so much wickedness in all my life, but that's where we are. And I can see a person, if I was living in that part of the world, be very concerned about, do I want to bring up children in this kind of a world uh, with this kind of governmental control and and, uh, tyranny? That would be something. We in the Caribbean are a lot more fortunate than that. Number one, we don't have the money to waste on this foolishness that people are engaged in. And, uh, of course, uh, good for us. We have been... Um, I don't want to use the word indoctrinated, but we've had the Bible for such a long time 
that we have certain moral sensitivities in respect to this kind of uh, atrocious moral behavior. And I hope we're not foolish enough to follow the trend that is being set by the other part of the Western world. I hope we hold the biblical truth, uh, because if we don't, we're headed for a tremendous amount of trouble. I saw some African uh, leaders this week on um, YouTube where they're being interviewed about this whole transgender and this whole homosexual thing. And every one of them that was interviewed said, listen, our culture is against it. And the, 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 uh, the interviewers were trying to push them to uh, renege and give in. Uh, and they said, absolutely not. Uh, whenever our people, and I like them to put it that way, um, we decide there will be a referendum, basically. It would not be me deciding that this is what I will put on my people, let the people, because that's what society is all about. I thought it was a very smart answer for political leaders in Africa to be pushing back and not being bamboozled by the smartness of these uh, interviewers who are trying to pressure them to yield to the Western agenda to break down all morality and to introduce this kind of uh, um, um, egregious sexuality, sexuality within society. You're listening <coughs> to That's Truth. It is a live, interactive call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We are broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at radiolighthouse.org. Also, for this program, you can join us on Facebook. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and right there on your device, in the comment section, while you're watching the video feed, you can comment your questions or your concerns. Maybe you don't have a question, but you have a suggested topic you'd like us to discuss in a future episode. Please share that. You can WhatsApp or text it to one 268 7821454 Thank you again to those who have already sent in your questions and if you'd like to call and ask it live on the air you can call 1-268-462-7420 Yeah I want to say the two quick things Nathan one has to do with the, the dream aspect of it uh, I did want to make one uh, caveat there that is while I acknowledge that today clearly in the eastern part of the world, occidental part of the world, where uh, people don't have access to the Bible and missionaries are banned and uh, you've got to do it underground, etc., etc. The Lord seemed to be using dreams to, and visions to bring these people to faith. I want to caution that any vision or dream that is contrary to Scripture is not of God. That has to be the caveat because you you probably will have people would uh, use whatever dream they've had, and even though it is contrary to the Bible, they keep insisting it is from God. God would not lead anybody contrary to Scripture. I don't care what dream, what vision you have. The Holy Spirit is the one that inspired Scripture. He is a spirit of truth, so He's not going to allow uh, any vision or dream to go contrary to the biblical principles that need to be said. The other thing is that the I did want to say to the gentleman who sent in a, um, a request some time ago dealing with business. You remember that one? Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at it, but it is, I am not too sure how I can maintain the interest because it's more like how you start a business, where you source capital, how you go about do it, uh, what are the uh, ethical principles for a, a success of a Christian businessman. I am looking at it, but... Uh, 
it's not something I want to tackle immediately, but I am looking at it. And I think that we're going to tackle it at some point in time because there may be some Christian people who are young people who want to start business, et cetera, et cetera. And they may not be sure how do you source capital, how do you go about that, et cetera, et cetera. And then how do you do your budget and, and how do you, you know, that, that, that kind of stuff. So we will probably come to that. But that is not uh, an area that is urgent at this point in time. And I thank the person for sending it in. And I don't want you to desist from sending it in. And if we don't answer, you might think of what to use me sending in something when you're not going to deal with it. We are going to deal with it, but just give us a, a few weeks before we deal with it. Thank you for your interaction. Pastor, we have another question that has come in here. Pastor Murphy, can you shed some light on Dallas Theological Seminary for me? A sister in Antigua sent me a clip with some free Bible courses they are offering, and I am interested in pursuing them, but I would like to find out how reputable a theological seminary they are before I sign up for them. Please let me know. The courses look really interesting, and I know they can help me grow in my spiritual walk with the Lord, but I want to know if they are a reputable group. Yeah, I have no problem with Dallas. As a matter of fact, I can't think of... There are many, many of the outstanding uh, leaders today who have graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, For example, Tony Evans, uh, he that comes to one uh, right away. Um, I think it'd be hard to to look at those who, the high-profile fundamentalists that you see on the television. If you check, in in most cases, uh, they've actually attended Dallas. If you read uh, John Walbert's book, he came from Dallas, um, he has one of the best books on Daniel, the book, book, best book on Revelation. And Chuck Sindall, he's also a Dallas uh, Seminary person. Not that I agree with everything that uh, these men uh, personally uh, hold to, hold etc. But the, the courses, I am very, very sure that you can trust the courses, and you're going to find that the courses are excellent. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because I might search the website as well and see if I can get a few free ones because I like to I like to keep my brain fresh and if there's something free, Pastor Murphy, no one will go after it. Okay, <laughs> uh, there are a lot of places now that you can do a lot of courses free. Uh, it's just a matter of time, but Dallas, really, if I uh, can do a few courses there, by just I, I wouldn't mind doing it if I f- could fit it in. So I'm glad you mentioned that. But I would I would uh, recommend it and I would suggest that if you can take advantage of it because I don't know how long it's going to last. And remember that to attend Dallas is very expensive, very, very expensive. So if they give you free courses, uh, I would grab them, and I would grab them as quickly as I can. Just don't grab them before Pastor Murphy has a chance to <laughs> grab them. <laughs> uh, thank you for your question. Another question that has come in, Pastor Murphy, can a pregnant woman transfer trauma to her unborn child? For example... A pregnant woman is in a hostile environment with her husband. They quarrel a lot, and when the child is born, the child exhibits miserableness. Thus, the child grows up, and he or she is quarrelsome and miserable. Is there any certainty that this is possible? Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that uh, today. I think the the medical facts are there that, uh, for example, you take even a parent who's using drugs, for example, and uh, it's making them very anxious and uh, hypertensive, et cetera, et cetera. Generally speaking, when the child is born, you find that they exhibit certain of those qualities. 
if you have a situation in the home where a mother who's carrying a pregnant baby is traumatized, uh, whether verbally abused, physically abused, emotionally abused, financially abused, and she is constantly worried and anxious, the chemistry of her body is called psychosomatic illness. Um, certainly affects the because remember the child feeds off the mother, and all of these um, enzymes and so on are in the blood itself. So if you have um, disproportionate a lot of these things, it's going to affect the child. People would normally tell you that, for example, that it runs in family. If you've got a worrier, a mother or father was a worrier, you could. At your bottom life, in the majority of cases, the kids that are born are born with that, or if they constantly go through depression, uh, that seems to be a trait that is passed on to the thing. So, if you're having trauma uh, as a, a wife and it's affecting your body and how you can function, how your body functions affects how the child in you functions as well. Uh, the same mixture of chemicals are there. So, I have no doubt in my mind that that is a possibility. Uh, and you know, and a lot of times, children. Um, come out of the wound with a lot of emotion. You know, by the I don't know if you notice that sometimes uh, people now learn that to play good music to the kids while they're in the wound, and it seemed to have a very positive effect upon the child. Mm. So I have any doubt in my mind that the trauma a mother experiences, uh, not fully, but certainly is passed on to to the child and can affect the child. I think any medical. I'm not a medical doctor, but I would suggest to you if you talk to any medical doctor, uh, he would probably say the same thing that the trauma. Uh, passes on to the child, even not if not fully extensively, uh, in some limited ma- manner. A question that has just come in. Again, thank you to each and every one who has sent in a question. Good night, Pastor. My question is, as a Christian, how should we respond to someone asking you, why does God make others suffer for another's sin? For example, generational curses and punishment of nations. Well, generally speaking, um, our Lord made that promise in the Old Testament, I think in Exodus chapter 20, visiting the iniquity upon the fathers on the third and fourth generation. But if you look at that, that, that particular curse is, has to do with idolatry. Uh, and then there's another passage in the book of Jeremiah which says that uh, it no longer would be said the uh, parents have eaten uh, sour grapes and the children's teeth are on edge. God said, I will remove that. Every man will pay for his own sin. So it depends. I, I do believe there's an element of uh, where a person is involved in uh, idolatry, involved in the occult, involved in uh, demonism and so on and so forth. I do believe there's something called transference. But I am not absolutely sure that in respect to other forms of sin, uh, like immorality of necessity, is passed on to uh, deliberately passed on to the child. I do believe that immorality is something of a learned behavior. Mm. And I think that children living in that environment, if mommy is a, um, a slut, basically, and she sleeps along with five and six men, she has six children and five different men, et cetera, et cetera, there's no question about it. The, the child brought up in that kind of environment would have no sense of marriage, no sense of fidelity, et cetera, et cetera. And it's normally, and, and normally it goes on from the, from the father's well. Uh, when boys watch their dads and how they treat women and how many women they've got and how many children they've got out of wedlock, that's not conducive to any kind of morality. So the child is being trained indirectly and is learning from the parent's behavior, and that carries on. I've heard people tell me, for example, um, you know, I could never beat my wife if I get married. Those same people, 
when the parents, uh, daddy has used his hand against his mom and brought her into submission, you'll be surprised how many of those guys do the same thing with their wives because that's what they've learned how to do. They, they can't mm-hmm. reason, they can't be logical, uh, they feel embarrassed with the wife, it's wiser than they, and the way they deal with it is to become a strong-handed person and use their hand against their parent. But that's something that's learned. So I don't think that every sin is uh, automatically passed on from generation to generation. But I do feel when it comes to the matter of God, worship of God, and that which relates to Him in terms of idolatry, dealing with uh, a cult and dealing with uh, um, witchcraft and so on and so forth, those who have studied this, and I would recommend a book called Counseling the Occult by um, Koch, K-O-C-H. It should be in CLC. Uh, 45 years or 47 years of dealing with this kind of problem in the European countries and uh, he will give you some stories and tell you some stories but out of his experience uh, it is very clear that is that thing is passed on from one generation to another and it normally runs the people have dealt here in Antigua by the way and I've dealt with about three of them already uh, probably four at the most uh, who have had this kind of uh, dealing with demon, de- de- demonic possession and so on and so forth in every case that I have questioned was there anybody in your family that you could think about, maybe your grandmother, your grandfather? In every case, without exception, they've told me the same thing. Yes, it's my grandmother. She used to do this, whatever it is, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes they can even tell you what the grandmother, where she took them, what she gave them, et cetera, et cetera. So there seems to be a very clear connection there that there is transference. And those who deal with this realm, which is not my expertise, all indicate that there is this matter of transference that passes on from one to the other. So from that aspect, I do feel that general sin, every man pays for his own sin, but I think it's the matter of learned behavior that's repeated in the life of the children because that's how mommy is, that's how daddy is, and they're just practicing what they've learned. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.08. We have Brother Williams calling from Bendel's. Brother Williams, thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Good night. Good night, Brother Timothy. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Good night, Brother. How are you doing? Yeah, but I've been fine for the time. I'm glad to hear that. Thanks so much for the little the, uh, the things you sent me in the morning to make my, my day. <laughs> 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 I appreciate that. I'm sorry, Brother Timothy. Yes. Two questions. Um, can we talk in the Bible that a, way a woman can be a deaconess and an apostle? If a woman can be a deaconess and an apostle? Yeah. Well, number one, you're no apostles. Uh, you want to make that very, very straight. Uh, one of the qualifications in the biblical sense of the apostles, it had to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I don't have anybody here today who actually saw the Lord uh, after he was resurrected. So let's put that out of place right now. And the Bible says also in the book of uh, Ephesians chapter 4 that the church was built on the prophets and the apostles. They They laid the foundation. Once you've laid the foundation, and they were the ones that laid the foundation, you don't need to lay the foundation again. You now need the superstructure, which is made out of pastors and teachers, or pastor-teachers. That's the gift that's being used today. But uh, perish the thought of prophets and, and apostles. Uh, I, don't, I don't submit, or um, in my own judgment, I don't think those are relevant. Number one, the Bible is complete. The apostles gave us the Bible, and the prophets gave us the Bible. The Bible is totally complete, so we don't need that. In terms of a deaconess, now, um, if you look at the qualifications for the deacon in uh, Timothy and also in Titus, uh, I don't see any indication in the, those verses 
where um, that is given to women. Uh, I think that men are given a leadership role in the church. Uh, there are lots of other things women can do. And I don't. what I can't understand is the Bible gives very clear directions of what women should be doing. It said, let the elderly, older women teach the younger women. That is a ministry that's needed today more than any other ministry I can think about, to be honest with you. With all the immorality, look, it's bad when men are immoral, okay? But when women are loose, society just gone down the drain. You need women, uh, elderly women, godly women, to take these young women under the, under the wings, as it were, and disciple them. That's the greatest need, in my judgment, that is needed in respect to the church and the young ladies in the church. The pastors... Uh, uh, let me say this. I would prefer uh, senior women take on that responsibility rather than pastors. Pastors are males, and we got our job to mentor the young men. And that's where the women are needed. I don't know why they want these other positions. When The other thing is this. One of the most important ministries is to children. I don't have anybody more qualified and more prepared to deal with children than, than women. Like Bible Club Ministries uh, is, is so needed. Um, so I, I think if women would just concentrate on these things and let the pastors concentrate on the other aspects of it, they would complement each other. There's no need to be competing. See where the Bible puts the emphasis on the, for the women. What's the emphasis? Train the young ladies. Get involved in, in, uh, uh, in children's ministries. Those are two of the great, because listen, the children's ministry feed the youth ministry, which feeds the church. If you don't have a, a small ministry with the children, you don't have a church in the future. So you have to understand that the women are playing a, an extremely vital role, as a matter of fact. They're the ones laying the foundation for the future church, if they would just concentrate on those areas that God has given to them. Uh, so that is my view on the whole matter. However, I'm not going to kill a church uh, who has, you know... Uh, interpret a little bit different than I do as far as that is concerned because I don't think that's a major doctrine but I really think women have so vital I, if every woman in every church in Antigua were to concentrate on focusing on mentoring the young ladies think of what that would mean for society it would think on getting young kids into the faith at a very early age think of what that would mean for society how does that compare by any means by sitting on a, a board with a pastor and the deacons? I don't see how that compares. To my mind, it's far greater job that they perform if they will stick within the realm that God has designed for them. Uh, but again, you know, men, want, women want to be men, men want to be women. It's a complete disorder and chaos is happening today. And in my judgment, it's just rebellion against God and against where God has placed people. That's my judgment on this matter, sir. Okay, and um, second question now. Um, in First Samuel chapter one, when Hannah was barren, is it was a punishment or that she just couldn't have children? That. Well, I don't, I don't know if it's a punishment, but I do know this, that, you know, God is the one that gives life. He opens the womb and he shuts the womb. That's what the book says, uh, and I take the book very seriously. In the case of, of, of Hannah, um, it is very, very clear that uh, in God's, from eternity, that she would have had a child called Samuel. There's no question about that, because uh, he knows the beginning from the end. But again, you can see uh, back in those days as well, when a woman was barren, she was perceived herself as under curse because in the Jewish thinking, 
all the blessings that are promised substantially in the Old Testament to the Jew are physical material blessings whether that be wealth in terms of stock in terms of animals in terms of land etc etc so when a person was poor that was perceived as though quite frankly that God wasn't blessing them it's like the prosperity gospel today quite frankly they're telling us today that you know God wants to be healthy wealthy prosperous and successful and that's the bait for people coming into the Christian religion but we must balance that by our Lord saying in this world you have tribulation Paul saying if a man live God he would suffer persecution so the, the, the false gospel Called the prosperity gospel is 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 quite quite frankly as I call it uh, Sunday morning humanistic um, uh, pop psychology masquerading itself as true Christianity and 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 similarly I think that is what happened with people in the Old Testament when they didn't have children but again it shows you quite frankly that you know even with Sarah for example Sarah was what ninety when she first when she got her first child. Uh, and, and again, God opened her womb and she became. So I would say to people, uh, it doesn't mean of necessity um, that a person is punished because they didn't, they're not having a child. It may not be in God's will for a person to have a child. That's a reality. Some people sometimes force the matter and uh, sometimes they will regret uh, as well. So you've got to trust the Lord. Um, if a person was barren today, uh, my advice would be to check and see if there's no medical condition. Sometimes the tubes are blocked for some reason. Sometimes they take the pill too early. I've known of a couple right now in St. Lucia who can't, well, they've been trying out to be married. I've been here 20 years, so they must have been married about 25 years. We warned them before they got married. We said, listen, the indication is that if you're going to use the pill, two years maximum. That's what we counseled them. They didn't want to listen. Uh, quite frankly and they kept using and now he would do anything to have a child she would do anything to have a child but it interrupts the whole system uh, in the body so but I would say to a person who's like that you know check with the medical physician see if there's anything that is causing this sometimes the sperm con- demand is low as well and you can still have a child by injecting the sperm into the womb I mean if you want to go, go, go that way you can have it but uh, I would say, quite frankly, that um, you know, it's a matter between the individual. This is not where the Bible speaks explicitly what to do. Pray, ask God to open the womb with your wife or whatever. And uh, you know, like anything else, if you have medical condition, we ask if we can get medical aid. But um, it's not of necessity that God is uh, is a curse or barrenness is a curse. I would say it is in God's sovereign will to give life, and, and He knows what's best. Sometimes he can see down the line, if I give this, you know, what would happen? Uh, the pain, the anguish you'll face in life, can you handle it? He might see that you can't handle what's coming your way in the future. And in his wisdom, uh, he withholds that, that terror from you. So just trust the Lord and, and uh, uh, ask him if you want to have a child. Keep praying and keep praying and keep praying. Look how long uh, Sarah had to wait. Look how long Hannah had to wait. So keep asking, keep asking. <laughs> Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for listening. You're welcome, sir. Thanks so much for calling. We really appreciate your calling. Thanks. Thanks for your call, Brother Williams. Always enjoy you interacting with us here on the Radio Lighthouse. If you have a question and you'd like to ask it live on the air, you can call 268-462-7420. The phone line is now open and available. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268 782 Five, four. 
We have a question that has come in via WhatsApp, uh, and this is in relation to the New Covenant. Uh, good evening, Pastor. Is there a New Covenant now according to Hebrews 10 and verse 16? And I'll come back and read that reference in a little bit. If so, if yes, what was Jeremiah 31 verses 33 and 34 addressing when it says, we will not teach each other about knowing God, since we shall all know God during the new covenant. And I can read those passages if you want. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 15 and 16 says, Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in my minds, and I will write them. And Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34 says, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Well, the, the answer to that is that uh, not only the book of Hebrews, but one of the great classic passages that deal with the New Covenant is Second Corinthians chapter 3. Maybe you can turn there, please, and, yeah. and read that. Because to my mind, this is the most um, precise uh, aspect of the, the, the covenant as to what it entails and the fact that we are no longer under the old covenant, we are under the new covenant. So I don't mind if we can spend a little bit of time on this, Nathan. Maybe you can um, read it read it from verse 1 and follow and make some yeah. comments. Yeah, uh, feel free to interrupt me anytime. Sure. Second Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Do we now begin again to commend ourselves, or need we, as some others, epistles of condemnation to you or letters of condemnation from you. Verse 2, Ye are our epistles written in our hearts, known and read of all men, forasmuch as we are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. Verse 4, And such trust have we through Christ to Godward, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Uh, scrolling down here, verse number 6 says, Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. The word testament is the same word covenant that is used in the book of Hebrews. Okay. So it's talking about the new covenant. That's what the word testament means. And notice that it's a contrast between the uh, the new covenant, which is of the Spirit, and which one was written what? Letters the, of? The letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Right, right, right. And was, uh, go, go, go on reading. But if the ministration of death, written and engraving in stones, was glorious... 
so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which the glory was to be done away? Okay, but notice there now that it's very, very clear that the, the gist of the essence of the Old Covenant is codified in the tables of stone. I mean, you know what that is. There's only one part of the Bible where it's called the tables, that's the Ten Commandments. Yeah. This was the, in the encapsulation of what the covenant was about. Every other part of the book of the law from the Exodus, uh, Leviticus, is an, all the laws are an extension of each one of those laws you find in the Ten Commandments in, in some form, whatever. But this is the, it's like the, the official document that summarizes what the covenant was about. And this has to do with the Ten Commandments, which was to be done what? which was to be done away. You see that? Okay, continue reading. Verse 8. Again, if you're wanting to follow along in your own Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect, by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glory... No, notice that word again, done away. Mm -hmm. So this was done away, the covenant that was written in stone, in, in stone that's done away. That's why we say to the to, to people that the Old Testament economy has been put aside, being not only the economy of grace. Now, what the Lord has done, Nathan, is that He has taken certain aspects of the old economy and put them in a new economy. That's why you find that nine of the Ten Commandments are given in the New Testament for the church. The one that's left out is the Sabbath. Why? Because the Sabbath was a type of the rest that Christ would give the believer. People don't understand that God has a right to take elements from one covenant and put it in another. He's the sovereign one that does that. But the point I want to make is that it's been done away. It's been put aside, quite frankly. We're no longer under the Old Testament law. Okay, continue. For if that which was done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which was abolished, but their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. Again, uh, the Jewish people are still blinded by the law. It's like a veil they can't see. But what removes that veil is Christ. Once you look at the Old Testament through Christ, you begin to realize that everything about the Old Testament was to magnify Him, to talk about Him. So when you put Christ, that's what the Old Testament is about, is to point to Christ. Christ has come, and it has served its purpose. Paul says in Galatians, it was our schoolmaster mm -hmm. to bring us to Christ. But after we brought to Christ, we don't need the schoolmaster any longer. We have the Spirit in us. Now, the point I'm trying to get here is that this is clearly the new covenant. And notice the words that they use here. They, they compare the covenant of death, the covenant of condemnation, the covenant of life, the covenant of the Spirit. The two of them are contrasted. But in, in the uh, Jeremiah, we have the church became part of the old covenant after the Jews rejected the Messiah. The covenant was supposed to be with the Jews. Okay. Jeremiah makes it very clear. But when the Messiah came and they rejected the Messiah, that's where the church was now created. In other words, because of Israel's blindness, read it in Romans, they have been 
set aside and the Gentiles have been grafted into the plan. So we became partakers of the new covenant. The new covenant will one day be fulfilled with Israel. There's a coming a day after tribulation, after God has chastened them, that they will return to the Lord. And you remember what he said? Um, uh, Christ said the word, I will not come again until you say, uh, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, basically. So that's going to happen. It's not been fulfilled totally in its totality to Israel. But we Gentiles have been grafted into the plan. Now the point that the person is making there, which I think is a valid one, this is where I, I, I say to people, and I make it very clear, Christianity is far more than people make it. When a person becomes a Christian, he becomes part of the new covenant. What's the new covenant? The law of God is now written in the believer's heart. That is why there should be an impulse to want to obey God when you mm -hmm. get saved. That's why uh, I don't want to teach a person who becomes saved after a while who Jesus is. The Spirit of God helps him, and, and now he's able to, when he hears the Word, the Spirit of God confirms the Word in his heart. Right. So we now have the, we don't need anybody to teach us. Uh, James said, uh, John says that we have an unction from above, and we need not anyone would teach you. So there's no real need for having a basic understanding of what God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, holiness, etc., etc. That is not needed uh, as far as the, the Christian. So you, don't, you shouldn't have to tell a Christian that it is wrong to, to commit fornication, it's wrong to practice idolatry, it's wrong to um, practice extortion, like the Bible talks about. The word, according to the New Covenant, our heart has changed. He's taken away the heart of stone and now given us what is called the heart of the flesh. So we are sensitive to the Holy Spirit who wrote the Bible, who brings the Word to our mind. That is why when I don't see a Christian life change, a person who said that they're saved. For example, I watch a two, uh, one or two things today. One of the most influential people today is Oprah. Yeah. Oprah is not saved. She's a lost woman. I listened to her uh, this week on the radio, I mean on the, on the YouTube. Uh, she doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is the only way. She believes that there are many ways to God and that every way leads to God. A woman who believes like that can't believe in the true and the living God. But, of course, she is an, one of the main proponents of the New Age movement. If I could give you a whole list of all the New Agers she's put on her program to promote the New Age uh, theology, basically, which has to do that, basically, that you have the Christ in you. And you just don't recognize. Your problem is not that you're a sinner. Your problem is that you're ignorant. And you don't realize that you have this Christ conscience. That's what she believes in, right? A woman like that is not saved. Uh, I listened to Obama uh, this week again. Uh, he said that he wanted, uh, about, especially with, um, um, uh, he said he wanted his daughter to have the same sexual freedom as he had. So he want, that's why he wanted abortion. Now think about that. A man saying that he wants his daughter to have the same sexual freedom he had. That's why he, 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 he pushes abortion. What does that tell you about a man uh, values? He has no values whatsoever. Mm -hmm. You mean to tell me I want my wife to be as wild as I am, to have as much sex as I can have without any kind of responsibility? When I hear people making those kind of statements, we tend to say I'm a Christian. Mm. That's jokers, complete jokers. But the problem is that if you make statements like that I'm making, you are labeled. I'm not concerned about being labeled. I'm concerned of telling people that these people who make these professions are fakes. They're just, they need to be called out and they need to be called out publicly. They are total fakes. So I, that's where I come into the new covenant. When a person is born again, 
truly born again, the Spirit of God comes to dwell within that person. The law is now written on his heart. In other words, his inclination is towards obedience. That's why the Bible talks about the obedience of faith. True faith is the kind of faith that leads to obedience. If it doesn't lead to obedience, it's not true faith. Mm. That's why the Bible again talks about the obedience of faith. We've got a lot of fake Christianity that needs to be exposed. A lot of people are on their way to hell thinking they're in the kingdom and they're outside the kingdom. Simple as that. You want me to continue with the last three verses? Yes, please. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 15 says, But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And the last verse says, But we all... With open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as the Spirit of the Lord. Again, this veil that is blinding the Jews and blinding people is taken away when you turn to Jesus and look. And as you see Jesus, you see basically like it's like in a mirror reflecting the glory of God. That's, that's basically what they're saying. But again, it's a result of the new covenant. That's the king, the person. I think that's what the person is emphasizing, that they don't need a teacher. They don't need that. And that is generally true. The Christian uh, has the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth. But again, that does not, at the same time, uh, contradict the Bible, which says that God has given to the church pastors and teachers uh, for the development of the church and for the growth of the, of, of the ministry. So they have, God has given to the church gifted people who go beyond just what, uh, I would say, um, common knowledge. And that's what a pastor must do. A pastor must be an expositor of the Word. He has to dig deeper in the Word than the ordinary student. He has to be able to get behind the English word, going to the Greek, sometimes even the grammar, to explain uh, in a greater depth than a person just reading a, a text. And that's where pastors have the hard work of exposition and uh, exegeting the scripture. The ordinary man, he doesn't have the time, sometimes he doesn't have the tools, and he doesn't have the training. So that's not to discount the need of having to need pastors and teachers. The, the reality, however, is that the Spirit and the new, um, new Covenant has meant that the believer's heart is inclined towards obedience to God and uh, understand truth about God, and truth about His Son, etc., etc. Thank you very, very much to each of you who have sent in questions this evening. That is the purpose of this program, is to interact with you, to allow you to ask questions. Maybe it's not necessarily a question that you have, but a question that you've overheard at the lunch table in your workplace, and you think it would be beneficial for others to hear a biblical answer to the question. If you have a question and you'd like to call and ask it live on the air, I've recently been asked couple of times, what happens if I call the radio lighthouse to be put live on the air? Here's what will happen. If you call 268-462-7420, first person that answers the phone is going to be Sister Marianne. She's just going to get some basic information as far as if there's a particular passage or verse that your question is about, and then she will send that to me over a chat program, and I will go ahead and look up that verse so that it's prepared, and then she will put you on hold. And you'll listen uh, through your phone, not through your radio, but through your phone. And I will pick you up and put you live on the air after you're on hold for just a minute. If you don't want to speak live on the air, you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268 
782-1454. Again, if you send in your question, we're not here to argue. It is a safe place for you to ask your questions. We're here to hear your concerns, hear your questions, and then answer them from a biblical worldview. Another way that you can interact with us tonight is go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and while you're listening to the program and watching behind the scenes in the studio, right there in the comment section underneath the video feed, you can send in your question or your concern for Pastor Murphy, and I will share it with him in a timely manner live on the air. A question that has come in, Pastor. Some individuals believe that we should not pray out loud because demons can intercept our prayers and work against us. Is that true? Um, I, I, don't th- I thought we'd answer that last time. I don't remember. But um, what I would say is that... Um, Clearly, if you're voicing your prayers and uh, if you believe that incesting of demons and devils, whatever it is, basically, uh, clearly, if they're wrong, they could hear. There's no doubt about that. But again, the, the reality is that you've got to realize you have a counterforce, and that has to do with the Lord. Does he intervene in such a way that they can't understand, can't comprehend what is what we're saying, etc., etc.? There's a mystery about that in, in in the scriptures. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us that. Uh, uh, but there's no indication that we should pray silently of necessity. For example, read all the prayers in the Bible. How would people have known those prayers except they were praying aloud? And David, uh, I mean, they're, they're. so if if you use the argument that the devil can hear us, he can see it as well. So all the prayers that these people had in the scriptures, they would have seen it. But there was no uh, way that uh, they were interviewed. The only recorded account of where a prayer was made, where there was the answer was sent and it was stopped in the way by a, a powerful uh, fallen angelic being. It was in Daniel chapter 10, I think it's Daniel chapter 12, where it took two weeks before the answer came to Daniel and Michael, the archangel, had to come and assist uh, in to defeat this powerful angelic being. But there's no indication that that, that is uh, going to interfere with your prayers. And the Lord is far stronger than the enemy, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that you, that should be a concern. What I would say to you that I do find that praying aloud helps me to concentrate. Yeah. If you try praying silently, your mind just wanders all over the place. I, I could just tell you about me. You can't yep. tell other people. I would agree with uh, you. Yeah. So I do think that it is very, very helpful to be able to somehow to hear what you're saying and and, and, and pray it out. So I would, I would not um, discourage you from praying aloud. I don't mean, uh, you know, you're at home and everybody down the village can hear you praying. That is, that is being <laughs> farcical now, yeah. right? But clearly, uh, it, it helps my thoughts to, to keep in mind what I'm praying about, etc. And I f- do find that when I try to pray privately without even uttering a word, my mind just wanders and wanders and wanders. That's the way it is with me. So it doesn't work with me to just pray a silent prayer. Although Hannah, that we mentioned before, remember she yep. was praying a private prayer and her mouth was moving, and uh, Eli thought she was drunk. Yep. You remember that story? So she, there is room for that. But generally speaking, I can't find any anything in the Bible that would discourage people from praying aloud. So I I, I, um, I am not inclined to, to go in that direction. Another question that has come in. Should married people go to a different church? When a church encourages a woman to attend church without her husband, is this a form 
of adultery between the pastor and the married woman. Christ is the head of the home. The husband is the priest of his home and attends a church. Should a pastor encourage a woman to attend his church or the church her husband attends? And I know for sure we answered that question, but let me answer it again. Uh, I would discourage a pastor separating a husband and a wife in regards to church unless she's going to some kind of an apostate church or some non-biblical church or something, uh, some cultic movement, etc., etc., but uh, generally speaking, it was the wisest thing to do is that a woman goes where the husband goes to church. He's the leader of the home, the spiritual head of the home. And I don't think a pastor should encourage a wife to go to a, a church that is separate uh, than, than, the, than the husband's. Now, as far as spiritual adultery, I, I think that's going a little bit too far. Uh, um, I, I don't think that can be classified. I just think it's not wisdom that's not being regarded. I remember um, one lady coming to me one time and telling me that she was uh, her husband had um, left our church and gone to another church. And for a long time, to be very honest with you, I really felt that she should have gone with her husband. So the day she was, she made up her mind and came to me and told me, Pastor, you know, I, I said, listen, I thought you should have been gone a long time. Not that I wanted her to go. Mm. I, you know, she's a very, very pleasant person and a uh, person you want in your church, to be honest with you. But I always felt that since the husband had made that decision, uh, it was her duty to uh, have gone with him. So I commended her for doing it. And um, I would commend any, any, any person in our church if they were to tell me that a pastor, my husband has gone to another church, except if it was a place where they're going to a cultic church. I would be a little bit hesitant to do that. Uh, uh, but again, that would be her decision. I would not make that decision for her, but I would encourage her to be in a good church and to be in the church where her husband is. A question that has come in via WhatsApp. Pastor, can you please comment on Christians living in sin? Why do people want to be in the Bible and still live in sin? Old men must understand that young women do not love them. They just want what they have. You can't live in sin and get up in the morning and pray and say you're a Christian. <laughs> I'm smiling because uh, I, when I was in St. Lucia, I dealt with a similar, similar situation. Here was a, a man that would get up every morning, go into the bathroom, toilet basically, and have his devotional book, the daily bread. Uh, he would come to church on Sunday. You know, uh, all the signs that he is... But the man is chasing women, all, and he's married. And mm. the fact is, he was an older man than the, 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 the lady. Uh, I always wondered why they got married, to be honest with you. He had um, business, etc. I suspect that. Uh, but anyhow, but that is uh, something that puzzles me greatly. I cannot understand why people want Jesus and don't want to get away from what Jesus saved them from, which is sin. Right? Uh, I think a lot of these people are simply not Christians, to be very honest with you. I'm not saying that a believer has to be perfect. I'm not saying that a believer can't sin. But there is something wrong about a person who professes to be a believer and pursues sin with a passion and is part of their lifestyle. If it is part of their lifestyle, I warn you. And Paul says, do not be deceived on this matter. If these people are practicing, that's their lifestyle. Paul said, I warn you before and I warn you, such people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I think that is true of many people uh, who profess to be Christians, but they are no longer under any conviction of sin. And uh, as a matter of fact, some people become part of the church because they want to find a good wife. 
Uh, they want to find a good boyfriend. They realize they've played around in the world. Now they want to settle down. They come into the church because they're hoping to find a virgin, somebody who's pure. They just mess their lives up because they, they get married to them, but then they still got women on the side. Uh, I think that's what happened generally. So a lot of these people are not saved. Let me put it that way. Uh, and I'm not calling what sinless perfection now, but the lifestyle, the pattern. Uh, remember what John said? Uh, he that is born of God cannot habitually practice sin. That's what John said in the book of John. I don't know how Christians read verses like that, and they don't seem to. They like to say to themselves, well, you know, uh, that's what John says, but uh, I can't figure that one out. I'd be very, very concerned if I read a verse like that in the Scripture, and I see that I'm living a life of, of sin, continuous sin. I would be very, very concerned about that. But I think a lot of people are blinded by their um, um, by the devil, and I think that they're blinded by their weaknesses, and in many cases, I really think that they're not genuinely saved whatsoever. If you have a question, you can send it in via WhatsApp or text message to 268-782-1454. We've got about 18 minutes left in this episode of That's True. Still plenty of time, but go ahead and send it in soon. 268-782-1454. Yeah, I did want to say this, Nathan, that We've got to get back to what is biblical Christianity. And one of the things the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. If a person has not changed, and they can't say to their life in their life, I have changed, something is wrong with that decision. What about the person that says, Pastor Murphy, but that's bringing works into salvation? Well, it, it... that verse cannot be bringing works into salvation. It's saying that you're a new creature. Listen to the verse. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Behold, all things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. So there has to be a progressive decrease in our sinful lifestyle and a progressive uh, movement towards godliness. You're moving away from sin and you're moving towards God. That is the evidence of, of salvation. That's the, I repeat, that's the evidence. It's not, works do not save you, but works is an evidence that you are generally saved because the kind of faith that saves is faith that works. Mm-hmm. Okay? But it's not the work, and that's where the, the Catholic Church confuses the whole matter. Salvation is by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. But once you have true saving faith, it will produce the works that God from the foundation of the world had prepared for the believer. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. Okay? So there has to be evidence in the believers, a person who professes, and that evidence is their lifestyle. By their by their fruit, you shall know them, not by their profession, but by their fruit. What you see in their life is the evidence that they are authentic and real and genuine and not fake and fraudulent. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM and 92.3 FM. Along with that, my thoughts is running here. I am saying this is where the church has failed. And when I say the church, I'm talking, take the established church. Take the political situation in America, because I'm very, I keep abreast of that, because whatever happened in America is going to happen in the Caribbean. You take people like Nancy Pelosi. She should be out of the church. I don't know how the Catholic Church, you know, the, the Catholic, the priest had um, refused to give her communion. So where she went? She gone to the Vatican and they gave her communion up there. <laughs> this is a crazy, I mean, you think about that for just a moment, right? So, but again, how a woman like that can be part of a church, she's for everything that's against the scripture. She's for abortion. She's for same gender. 
and she's from marriage, that person is not saved. I don't care. Nobody can ever tell me a person that is saved. Okay, a lot of the American politicians are in the Catholic Church, and they can hold to these unbiblical positions, and there is no discipline. They're no. They're not excommunicated. Not put over the church. The church seems to me to be politically lame with the uh, the politics of the time and are not prepared to live according to Scripture. That kind of compromise is what has put the moral state of the world the way it is. The problem is not the politicians. Politicians are corrupt. They're not saved. They're not Christian. They can't act like Christians. The church refused to take a stand and tolerate those people as members in the church when they should be cast out. That is where I think the, the big problem lies today. How would you advise the listener who says, Pastor Murphy, I'm a new believer. I'm looking for a church to get established in and to call my church, call it home. What should I be looking for? What should I be avoiding? Well, the key thing today would be the Word of God. You have to find a church where the pastor is not preaching his ideas, is not preaching the pop psychology, is not teaching the false gospel or the prosperity gospel today. You have to find a person who is teaching the Word, expounding the Word, and explaining the Word. The Word has to be one of the key factors in your decision as to which church you go to. The other thing I would say to you is that it should be a church where you don't get lost in. I know these mega churches that they're used, but you want to be used of God. You just don't want to be saved and just you stay there and you, you're not used. You want a church where your gifts and your talents can be used within the church. So you find a, a church where you feel that you can, uh, not only the Word of God, but you also sense that I can be part of this ministry and I I want to be in, engaged in that kind of ministry. The third thing I would say that is very common for me is the matter of missions. Does that church support missions? The church mandate and uh, has been given to go into all the world and preach the gospel. The church must be involved in some way with the missionary activity, whether they're sending people out and they have the resources to do that, or they're supporting other people who have gone to the field to support I cannot conceive of a New Testament church that has no interest in missions. To my mind, it's a substandard church that doesn't matter what program you have, and you're using all your resources to just focus on you and focus on your ministry. It has to be missionary-minded in that regard. The other thing I would say, uh, you might want if you've got children, uh, you've got youth, you, you, it's not just for you uh, if you're going to join the church with your family does it have any, any kind of ministry for the youth does it have a ministry for the children a Sunday school or a Bible club or something like that I think that's important uh, as well those are the four, four things I would mention um, that I think are, are very very crucial Throughout the program this evening, you've mentioned a number of, I I hope they're extreme cases, but individuals who would claim to be in the church and claim to be believers, and you've pointed out from Scripture why they're not, their lifestyle doesn't match up with Scripture. Can you give us a positive example, or not necessarily an example, but explain to me what it means to be a Christian? Well, the the whole matter of Christianity, and I... Look, before I became a genuine believer, I attended Bible Club for several years. I went forward maybe two or three times. Quite frankly, uh, when I first finally realized uh, my understanding of sin, how evil I was, was at an evangelistic crusade. I came under so much conviction that night. As a matter of fact, I shared it with the church where I really thought the guy, he was from St. Vincent. His name was Reverend Cupid. 
I can still remember. By the way, he's related to my family. He just contacted us the other day. <laughs> I said, Mr. Cupid, do you realize that you're my spiritual father? And I hadn't seen him for maybe 40 years, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. He didn't even know what happened that night, right? But um, again, it was the conviction of sin. I understood for the first time that I was evil. I mean evil. Now, I've told people this before. When I got married, I was married at 27 years. I'd never slept with a woman. The only one I ever slept with is my wife. People think that's, a, that's, that's weird. That's, but again, I'm just saying, even though I was not immoral in that way, I was evil, Nathan. And it was not so much what I was doing, but what I was thinking. Hmm. That came to me uh, in a way. So I came on the conviction, and that's where it must begin with salvation. There must be a conviction, not that you are good, but you are evil to the core. Okay? That, to my mind, is, is where this Holy Spirit begins to, to work out. Because as long as you feel you're okay, you're good, you're much better than the other guy, you're not under conviction as yet. And it has to be the con- And that is the work of the Spirit. But what he does, he used the Word. And that night, uh, I can still tell you the passage the guy was preaching. Remember, <laughs> I'm now 68. Right, and I got say about sixteen or seventy. I can still tell you the past. I can still, I can almost see in my eye what he said that night that really affected me. The word was used. The spirit uses the word. You come under conviction, and when that reaches a stage, you you, you feel that. Let me put it this way: you want to almost cry out, "Where is their help?" And that's where he points you to Jesus. That he's the one that can forgive your sins, pardon your sins, and what you need to do is to be willing to repent of your sins, and that's where repentance. I left the 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 the, uh, the crusade that night, went home in my bedroom. I did not get saved in the church. I got saved from my bedroom. And that's allowed? God acknowledges that? Of course. I mean, you can get saved anywhere. <laughs> the woman got saved at the well, didn't she? Uh, but that's where I got. I settled the account there with the Lord in my bedroom. And I asked the Lord forgiveness and pardon. And I understood what I was doing. I, I, for the first time, I really understood the gospel, how important it was. And that brought me to faith and trust in Christ. I turned my life over to Him. And pretty much it was a transaction where I said, Lord, save me tonight, and I'll serve you the balance of my life. And that's been since I was of 16 or 17, right? Uh, so I am saying to you, there has to be conviction, there has to be repentance, and there has to be faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That is a very simple solution. There is no salvation without conviction, there is no salvation without repentance, and there is no salvation without faith in Jesus Christ. That's anyone can do that. When I say anyone can do that, the Holy Spirit can convict anyone. Anyone that comes under conviction has a choice to make. Am I going to still hold on to my sin? Or am I going to repent of my sin and turn away from my sin? And am I going to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ? That is what salvation is. And I'm afraid today, Nathan, I've said this several times in the radio, that people are presenting, telling people to receive Jesus. They are not emphasizing the matter of conviction and the matter of repentance. And I'm saying to people, unless there is conviction and repentance, you can't have genuine faith. That needs to be emphasized. And, and by the way, the reason why I think it's not being emphasized is because it's offensive, mm. right? Very offensive. People don't want to feel that they're sinners. They feel that they're good. And uh, pastors, because they want to get numbers in. Oh, you just say a little prayer. They call it easy prayerism these days. Uh, that's one of the books I'm reading, easy prayerism. You just say a little prayer, Jesus, uh, come into my heart and save me, uh, blah, 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 and that's it. And then they tell them, Presto, did you say that? Yes, so you're saved. But there was no conviction. There was no repentance. Tell me how you got saved. Mm-hmm. Right? So I'm saying that that's the three elements. Conviction, repentance, and faith in Jesus Christ. Very, very, very simple. 
We don't have to go to Mecca, like the, 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 the part of the Muslim belief, uh, to be sure of heaven. You have to make a trip to Mecca at some point in your life. So we don't have to do that. But it is so simple. But it's offensive to human nature. And that's where the, the element of what is called the offense of the gospel is there. You need to understand that you're evil and wicked and ungodly. You need to turn away from your sin. And the only person that can save you is Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Now, you keep referencing Jesus Christ and Christ alone. But in a day and age where, unfortunately, his name is a curse word to many people, for the individual who says this Christianity thing is completely new to me, Pastor, what does the Bible say who Jesus is? What should I believe about Jesus as I cry out to him? Well, the, the Bible points out several things, right? Um, number one, we know that he's God's son. We know that he existed from eternity. Uh, we know that God sent his son into this world, and we know that he became a man. So he is God in human flesh. It's called the incarnation. Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness. Uh, God was manifest in the flesh. So he's not just a man. He is God clothed in human flesh. Now, that's vitally important because man's sin and Christ has to connect man and God together. As God, he can take hold of the hand of God and as man, and he can bring the two together. That's called reconciliation because there has, since the fall, there has been this rebellion and, and uh, antipathy and hatred and uh, animosity between God and man. There has to be a reconciliation. But to do that, you've got to bring man and God together. Now, as man... He could pay the debt for man's sin because man sinned. As God, that gives the efficacy of his death that he can die for all men because he's God in, in himself. God needs a righteousness equivalent to his. We don't have that. Christ has that. Right? And the other thing that I think it's a great mystery, Nathan, as far as I'm concerned, is this. It tells me that when I put my faith and trust in this Christ who God has sent, that he not only takes my sin, but his righteousness, this is the most glorious part of it, is imputed to my account. I am in Christ. That's what makes God able to communicate with me, even though I am conscious that I still sin. But God sees me in him, so that God now has to deal with me on the basis that I am in Christ. And that's, to my mind, that's the most glorious thing about Christianity. How can we still be sinners and God deal with us? The answer is, we have to be in Christ. So there's no other way under heaven whereby a man can gain access to God except through him because no other person can provide the righteousness that can satisfy God but his son and that is one of the unique features so he's man he's God he is the redeemer he's the savior he's also the one that reconciles us he's the one that redeemed us praise the price for us and the one that can restore us to a right relation with God and we are told in the Bible that we are accepted to the beloved and of course Christ is that beloved son a question that has come in from the Facebook feed concerning Pastor Murphy coming under conviction does this same thing happen to children who get saved a child would not have necessarily gross sins in their life at an early age well I'll tell you what uh, most children that come to faith normally there is some conviction about wrongdoing uh, I was interested to first mention that because I was just looking at some people who how they got saved. Uh, I forgot the names right off the bat, but I did write them down. These are outstanding Christians. One got saved at five, one at seven, one at seven, one at five, well, four, five, seven, and there was one at eight, fourteen. These are, I mean, 
lead, Christians, I can give you the names right off the bat. These are great people that the Lord has used, but they got saved at an early age. But everyone will tell you, quite frankly, that there is and there was some kind of conviction. A child, uh, read why a child lies, it's because they know they're wrong. And I got a four, three-year-old there that can lie. Every time she gets into trouble, to get herself out of trouble, she would say, give a fib. Right, mm-hmm. so don't kid yourself. It may not be the same depth because they have not committed the same level of sin that we committed because we are adults, but they know right from wrong. And when they reach that age of accountability and they feel a sense of of, of guilt and of sin, don't distrust the fact that they are conscious that they have done something wrong, and that's what made them. As a matter, when they hear the gospel, and they, you're in a Bible club or a, a good uh, vacation Bible school, and the person explains to them what is sin, in most cases, when you ask for the invitation, they'll come up to you and they. I want to get saved and they'll always have that sense that there's something they did wrong that they need forgiveness for so I don't discount the fact that they're under conviction not the same level as I would feel because Mm -hmm. I had so many sins and I was uh, much older than they are but they will have some sense of guilt some sense of sin uh, as well you're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse we have about a minute left, minute and a half left in this particular episode. Pastor, for the listener who says, I am really struggling with just staying faithful in the Christian life, whether it be through the workplace that I'm working in or family situations, what advice do you have for that listener to continue pressing on in the Christian faith? I always say that that person is welcome to the Christian life. That's exactly what we're going to face in life. The Lord told us that we're going to have those kind of problems. But I would say to you, start out with God in the morning. Uh, Start out with reading scriptures. Start out with praying to Him. And uh, I think if you were to do that on a regular basis, get into the Word, get into prayer, that's where it must start. Then have an accountability partner someone that can you can talk to you can share what's been going on with if it's not your wife it's not your husband maybe it's a good friend I think that would be very helpful to you to be able to ventilate and to get good encouragement from from those people thank you for joining us in this episode of That's Truth and Lord willing next Tuesday in addition to answering your questions we will jump back into the topic of separation as taught in the Bible Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.